was at work and the beeper went off, I had a, a secret code that I would tell my wife. I would text her or call her and say, I'm going to be very late tonight coming home. And that was the code that I wasn't coming home. And so she would immediately start looking at the news, you know, and, and I'd come back wow. two weeks later and she goes, I know what you did. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. It was on CNN. <laughs> Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back for round two with former Navy SEAL Dr. Robert Adams. If you missed our last episode, definitely go back and check it out. Today, in part two, we move forward to Bob's career as an Army physician. We're going to learn what it's like being a physician attached to the Army's elite counterterrorism and hostage rescue unit known as Delta Force, a unit so secretive that even family members of Delta operators are treated by separate physicians. Next, we'll move to post-invasion Iraq and Bob's early efforts to train and equip Iraqi physicians who, because of Saddam Hussein's onerous travel restrictions, were practicing medicine in a virtual time capsule, unchanged over the past 25 years. We'll discover a close call that nearly ended the lives of 700 Iraqi physicians in a terrorist plot uncovered just in the nick of time. It's an incredible conversation for part two of our series. With that said, let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome back. Today we have Bob Adams back with us, and we always say to our guests we'd love to have them back, and many of them we're going to have back. But, Bob, we had you back pretty quickly here. It's only been a little over two weeks, so welcome back quick. Happy to be back. I had a lot of fun last time. Well, we did too, and as soon as we got off the line, Keith and I were talking about all the questions that we wanted to ask you and didn't get a chance to. And you and I talked later that night. We were kind of going through some of the uh, technical issues of getting our files uploaded, and, and we said, hey, let's just continue this uh, just in a couple weeks and get right back to part two here. So that's what we're going to do. And, Bob, there's so much more we want to talk about. And we, we spent a lot of time during our last episode on the actual training component of, of your time in the SEALs. And then we started to make your way into your career as a, as a physician. So let's try to jump back a little bit. Tell us, again, how, you know, you decided to join the Army. They were at willing to give you a four-year scholarship versus a three with the Navy. And take right back to that point there when you're, you're starting your training. Well, medical school was interesting because I was 36 years old starting medical school, having spent 14 years in the Navy already. And so I was an older student and uh, got to do that with Wake Forest University, took off my Navy commander's hat and put on an Army second lieutenant's uniform and started all over again from a military standpoint. And um, got to do my residency in Washington State at Madigan Army Medical Center, one of the best family practice programs in the country, that the it was Army or Navy. So that worked out real well. And then that, after those three years, uh, ended up in Fort Bragg as a major. Most doctors are, are commissioned as captains, but because of my prior service, they said, oh, "Okay, we're going to let you start as a as a major." And that's would have happened if I'd have stayed in the Army or Navy, simply because you don't want to take a brand new doctor and give him enough rank that he has to be in command of everything. Hmm. Uh, right. Hmm. So, but then I was going to say, my as I was talking about you earlier, 
I had arrived on Fort Bragg as a brand new attending physician, and I hadn't been there three months before newly recertified in parachuting. I found myself on an airplane on the way to war in Haiti. Uh, so they get your attention real fast in the military. <laughs> well, give us, for many of us who don't know how that works, I mean, are you always on call for that? I mean, that was obviously not a war plan well in advance, and of course it didn't become a war, thankfully, but... Um, you know, any of these operations, Panama, Haiti, the things that happened, you know, during the late 80s and 90s, could you just get a call at any moment and then the next day you're shipping out? How, how does that typically work? Well, it's not the same throughout the Army, but for our quick reaction forces, such as the Navy SEAL Delta Force, their, their timeline is very short. They would get a phone call and be airborne in four to six hours. Wow. The, whereas the 82nd Airborne Division has uh, advertised and historically been able to perform a launch within 24 to 48 hours of an entire you know, portion of a division. So in our case, we got a 48-hour notice to have 3,500 men airborne to Haiti, and we pulled it off. And it's, uh, yeah, you're on call, in a, and as a physician, it's interesting, you're not assigned to the 82nd Airborne directly. You are what's called PROFIS, a professional filler system, assigned to a unit in the 82nd Airborne. And periodically, you interact with these units. You parachute jump with them if you're parachute qualified. You go to field exercises with them uh, infrequently, once or twice a year in most cases. But on any moment of any day, you can get a phone call saying, we need you to go into lockdown right now and don't tell anybody. And, uh, and that's what happened to me. I got the phone call saying that you need to be in lockdown in 24 hours. And that's all I can tell you right now. Hmm. And the entire 3,500 man element of the 82nd Airborne Division and its support units got that same phone call to be at on base with all of your war equipment in 24 hours and keep it quiet. Well, that's a really cool idea until, <laughs> until you realize that instantly every single dry cleaner in town was was open <laughs> all night giving out these desert uniforms that had been in there in dry cleaning. And all of the <laughs> Army surplus stores were open all night selling flashlights and knives and uh, stuff that people go, you know, I just need this stuff. And the knife sharpening uh, guy at the at the Navy or the Army uh, post exchange was, had a big sign up going free knife sharpening all day and all night. Questions <laughs> <laughs> asked. I mean, everybody knew what was going to happen because you, you don't. Thirty five hundred people don't suddenly show up in every store in town buying war equipment. And so, when we did go on lockdown, uh, then it you know it got really quiet. And on twenty four hours later, we launched every single aircraft in the United States Air Force Army inventory wow. towards Haiti. Three thousand five hundred wow. jump. Jumps, jumpers on it and there was my wife said the local news was standing on the hill outside of the locked up bases watching these airplanes take off going hi i'm here in fort bragg uh, right outside of pope air force base and we've just watched our 83rd 84th 85th aircraft take off so much <laughs> for secrecy <laughs> i don't know exactly what they're doing but it does look like there's something going God, I'm sure they didn't have media coverage like that on D-Day. I mean, yeah, really, <laughs> exactly. Different world today. Well, not to mention too. I mean, at Womack Army Medical Center, this is a re regular hospital, and 
you weren't just sitting around waiting for this call. You're seeing patients every day. You're a family physician there. So I obviously you had to, the call had to go out that you're canceling appointments. I mean, people had to know that, um, you know, the regular ordinary days were, you know, coming to a stop. No, absolutely. And a matter of fact, we launched 14 doctors that day. Um, and we have no notice, no warning, but it's a military system. And that's why we, why we exist. The, uh, when I, I actually was on call at a civilian hospital where I was moonlighting to cover uh, internal medicine rounds for that weekend, and I, you know, I called, a me- called and left a message to the lady. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there this weekend. That's all I can tell you, and I don't know when I'm going to be back. I'll let you know when I do. And uh, the woman who answered the phone the next day said she burst into tears. <laughs> she knew exactly what was going on. <laughs> wow. Yeah, short notice, and um, people know how to adjust. Wow. So what, what equipment do you bring? I mean, do you keep bags ready at all times? Is this stored somewhere? What's, what's in so, your bag when you go? That's a fascinating question because it has to be answered two different ways. When I was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, there, there was very little preparation at, at the profession or filler system doctor backfill. You know, you would show up. And you'd get with your medics and you'd find out who you had and what the mission was. And then you'd create your own uh, backpack based on what your best guess as a doctor was. <clears throat> and this was really tough for the doctors who'd never been in the field before. So the medics had to help them a lot. And I, you know, I would run into the pharmacy and go, I can't tell you anything, but I need drugs. <laughs> and they'd go, yes, we understand. Take whatever you want. Wow. You know, and you'd walk around picking up antibiotics and uh, antiemetics and chest tubes and rubber gloves and, and, and you try to build your own setup the best you could. When I was done as a doctor with some prior, prior military experience, my, my backpack that sat between my legs on this jump aircraft weighed 60 pounds, and it was the size of a trunk that you might imagine traveling with. Wow. And and I had to jump out of an airplane with that attached to me. <laughs> did now, did now, you have but I want to finish answering that question by saying when I was with Delta, uh, everything was preloaded, pre-made, because we had a four hour launch window. Right. So not only did I have all my medical equipment preset and all of my medicines regularly redone and immunizations set aside, I had weapons and I had ammunition preloaded so that I could walk in the door, throw it on my back, and get on an airplane. Did you know how many men you'd be covering when you took off for this kind of thing? Well, <clears throat> going back to the 82nd Airborne, yes, because as soon as you arrive and uh, going to lockdown, they brief the mission and the forces. So we knew that 3,500 men, and I also knew for the Haiti invasion, we were jumping onto a uh, cement airway that was loaded with obstacles bad guys had put in place. And I'm looking at my, my pack backpack going, I don't have enough chest tubes and splints in this backpack just to cover the jump injuries. Mm. So heaven forbid they start shooting at us. Right. All right. So let's take a step here. You, you mentioned Delta and that's something we were pretty curious about. So I just read a book this past week and it's, there's a lot in it that we, you know, we certainly can't go into and you know, go for a conversation today, but are our listeners an idea of what's involved here, you know, start with the joint special operations command and, and tell us what that is. And then, how were you first approached to work with, with a particular group there? Well, for me, it's kind of a fun story because in the Army and, and in all the military services, you can wear any qualification badge 
from another service on your uniform. So I showed up on Fort Bragg in an army uniform wearing a great big uh, gold eagle uh, on my uniform that indicated I'd been a Navy SEAL. And word got out real fast that there was a doctor in town that used to be a Navy SEAL. And I hadn't been there a month before I got a knock on the door from people from Delta Force saying, uh, so that thing on your uniform, is that real? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Would you like to come play with us? I said, no. Uh, you know, I'm a brand new doctor. Uh, I've only finished residency. I haven't delivered enough babies yet. I've got a lot of patients to see. And besides, I've kind of done that, what you guys do. Let me be a doctor. And then they, they left by saying, well, would you consider it in the future? Hmm. And I said, check back with me in a couple of years. And to almost two years to the day, knock, knock, knock. <laughs> How about now? <laughs> and I, I said, well, yeah, now's a good time. I've, I've done what I wanted to do as a doctor. Let's go play. So then I spent the next four years with them. Now, and what year and was I, this? And this was uh, 1997. Okay. Still prior, I was there prior to 9-11. Prior to that. And the fun part of connecting a question you just asked me, the JSOC organization, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 are the two uh, units, the primary operational units under the Joint Special Operations Command that now falls under the SOCOM, Special Operations Command in, in Florida, currently commanded, by the way, with one of the Delta Force officers I served with there. He's a four-star general now. But when I walked into my first day at Delta for orientation briefing, I bumped into one of my Naval Academy classmates, Eric Olson, who went on to become a four-star Navy SEAL, our first one, actually. Wow. And we were both, we were both uh, in, in Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel range. We bump into each other walking into the breathing room. I go, Eric, what are you doing here? He goes, Bob, what are you doing here? I said, well, I work here. He goes, so do I. I said, what are you doing? I go, I'm the doctor here. Well, I'm the new SEAL Team 6 commander. And we both looked at each other and went, I'll be damned. Small world. <laughs> but that's the organization is two operational units, one in the Navy, one in the Army, that are managed through a very short chain of command. If a chairman of the Joint Chief Staff had a mission pop up, such as aircraft hijacking, he doesn't have to go through a long, lengthy process to get to the commanders in the field. He just tells one of his contact boys, put them And as soon as the alert happens, our beeper goes off with a special uh, numerical signal that says, we need you in now to be airborne in four hours. And, uh, and it's pretty impressive how quickly yeah. and how well that works. Wow. Wow. Since you were talking about the preparation and the call to, to, um, to action and everything like that, uh, we're so used to the TV shows now, like the Brave and the Navy SEALs TV show, uh, where they, they were playing basketball and all of a sudden they get the call and they go. How accurate is that? Is that something, does that feel like the real thing? I mean, obviously they didn't have all the, the setup and everything. Actually, it's, it's very real and very accurate. There's mm -hmm. been numerous situations where um, Hollywood scenarios have played out in real life. You're at a wedding and the beeper goes off and everybody's got to go. Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things has really happened. Um, because it's hard to imagine being 30 to 40 minutes away from your unit and you've got to be airborne, fully locked and loaded, immunizations given, prepared for whatever you're going to in four hours. So you've got to, you've got to drive to work, you got to get your gear, you got to get your shots, you got to be briefed for the mission, you got to get on that airplane, and, um, and you're, you're four hours later. You know, the shows don't show things like 
when that beeper goes off, a lot of other things are happening, like airplanes in the air being rerouted. I mean, amazing how impressive the logistics scenario is for these kinds of operations. Well, well, but it's a, it's good to know that that gives us a flavor of it. That's, that's, that'll help my watching of these shows because I'm, I'm totally addicted to them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to hijack it for the conversation for one quick minute before I leave, um, and fast way forward to where you are now, um, in family practice. And you, you have told us and, and been on record as saying that, uh, you don't use opioids or whenever possible, you don't use opioids. Um, and my question is, how does that relate to the opioid crisis? And also, what does your training in the armed forces, how did that prepare you for, for handling people without the use of, of the, um, the octans and things like that? Wow, that's a fascinating question because it roars me back to issuing morphine injectables to all my medics, both when we tried to invade Haiti and when we actually went forward into Iraq. You know, I was able to train my medics in the administration of injectable morphine, among other things, mm -hmm. and uh, issue the doctors uh, opioids that were key and essential for, for managing combat wounded. Right. And one of the stories we might talk about today was, was one of my wartime multiple gunshot wound injuries requiring incredible amounts of morphine. So in the military scenario, uh, Wartime opioid use is necessary in a cell. Right. The same restrictions apply in the civilian world. We try to avoid it desperately because uh, there is a tremendous amount of drug use and drug abuse in family members, both officer and enlisted, in the military like there is in the civilian world. So we have to be very, very careful about the use and misuse of opioids. I'm actually very pleased that North Carolina has recently passed a law seriously limiting my my ability to write opioids mm -hmm. because now I can look at my patients who are begging and pleading and cajoling and say, no, it's against the law, I can't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could have used that. There's no question, at least yeah. to, to stop the begging and the pleading. Yes. Um, are there specific coping skills to, to deal with pain that you learned or that they teach you or that you develop in the course of like the Navy SEAL training or working with Delta Force that you find helpful in a, in a family practice? No, not the, not the way I asked that question. Okay. Uh, I, I think we had spoken earlier about some of the incredible abilities of the special operators that I've seen and, and ability to endure pain. Right. You know, we talked briefly about a man who had had a grenade go off in his hand and blow his hand away, and he's sitting there talking about it, going, Doc, you know, I really hope you can save the hand. And so <laughs> the nurses are going, who are these people, and how can they do that? Um, the types of training that people through, not doctors, um, do make certain populations much better able to handle pain. I've, in the civilian world, had the most difficult time as you have in, in your own medical past helping even my little old ladies who are begging for oxycodone to understand that it's really not the pain you're fighting it's the addiction mm -hmm. yeah and one final question uh and then we'll get back on track uh i worked uh with a uh, one of my partners with some form of special forces he didn't really like to talk about it um but his transition into the just the regular surgical world was difficult because 
um, they'd call him up in the middle of the night and uh, they'd say, we have a person with an ankle fracture. And he would immediately think, it's just an ankle fracture. Just tell him to strap it up. And um, <laughs> did, did you find your transition when you got out of the armed forces was, was difficult for that reason? Did you expect people to have that superpower ability to not feel pain? Or did you at least why they didn't? Not really, no. I, okay. Uh, so much of my active care for patients in the area was for their kids and um, family members. Okay. So I, you know, I I delivered babies and I took care of the babies as I grew up, and I dealt with the, you know, the basic and the mundane. The biggest transition I had going from civilian, I'm sorry, from military to civilian, was the amount of disease, the amount of diabetes. You know, hypertension, obesity that you do not see in the military. Right. Uh, it's just not there. So I had to learn a lot more about dealing with the chronic disease of the civilian world that you don't see in the healthy, much more healthy, uh, military environment. Great. Good answer. All right. All right. Quick break here. We'll be right back to the episode. As many of you know, our podcast has grown tremendously since we started last year. Keith and I have really come to love doing this, and we're humbled that so many of you take time to join us here each week. You've probably also noticed that we don't have any advertisements. While we may consider this in the future, right now, this is something we don't make any money on. I do have one favor to ask from you today, and nope, it's not money. It's just a small and simple request. Please go on iTunes right now and give us a good rating. It's easy to do, and this is a huge help for us. While you're at it, please consider sharing our podcast with a few friends or colleagues today. You can tell them about it or email them a link to purespectrum.com. Again, thanks for taking time to join us. Thanks for helping us. And now back to the show. All right, Bob. So we lost Keith here. Uh, he had to go off for a meeting, but we're still having a lot of fun here. Just for a lot of our listeners who don't know a lot of the history here and how we got to where we are today, uh, particularly with JSOC, give us just a brief history. You know, take us back to the Iranian hostage crisis and give us an idea of you know, what we learned from that, then why JSOC was created and needed. Well, there are a lot of books, and I know you've just read one of them, that gives you a much more accurate history than I can tell you in a quick quick summary, but it boils down to the fact that uh, Jimmy Carter attempted a joint operation to rescue our hostages in, in Iran and during his presidency, and due to a series of unfortunate air events, uh, it failed. And when the hot wash to review what happened uh, came came to, to, to final evaluation, they said, you know, everybody was using different radio systems. The Army and Navy Air Force couldn't talk to each other. Uh, weather had a factor. Uh, different operational units were involved. The early Delta Force uh, component units were uh, expected to be greatly successful, but they just didn't have support that worked. So somebody very probably said, we need to come up with a way to have a multi-service joint operational command and control setting. And so the Joint Special Operations Command was formed to allow for future operations worldwide to use both Navy, Army, Air Force forces more effectively. And that evolved from then into the formalization of the Army's Delta Force, which actually came from a, an earlier unit called Blue Light that was operational hmm. back, back in the Vietnam, late Vietnam days. And um, 
then the SEAL teams, which had been around from uh, the underwater demolition days, we, we changed the UDT into, the, into SEAL teams in 1983. W during that growth period the, and the Joint Special Operations effort, SEAL Team 6 was formed from within the SEAL teams and taken out of the Special Operations Command and Control uh, that runs the Navy SEALs and given to this Joint Special Operations Commander, just as Delta Force was taken out of the Army Special Operations Chain of Command and given to the Joint Special Operations Commander. And that has continued to evolve to the point where now we have a four-star uh, admiral or general that commands the Special Operations Command, SOCOM, out of based out of Tampa, Florida. And um, it's it's a it's a huge operation that when uh, when it all started it was it was tiny and now that it's got a four star it's still tiny, uh, but conducts more successful missions than the other services all combined. They don't brag about that a lot, but the money we spend on our special operations units, Army, Navy, and Air Force, and Marines now, they have a component, um, really makes the money we spend on them well, well spent. Yeah, I was just amazed. The book I read, um, you know, it's hard to know as a civilian here, it's not involved how much of it is accurate or not, but clearly the complexity involved with this is just mind-boggling. And just the number of people, I mean, we... You know, we think from watching movies that, you know, a small team of Navy SEALs goes in, rescues the hostages, and gets out of there. But there's so many people who support them and very important roles. And it's and one of them, of course, is physicians and medics. And let's, you know, take a step back here to, you know, you were approached by somebody from Delta. Uh, a couple of years later, you decided to start, you know, to accept their invitation and start working with them. But these guys are pretty secret, right? I mean it's 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 what you think of as CIA agents, I mean, or, or case officers. I mean, they have sometimes uh, secret identities. They don't even admit who they work for or what they're doing. Um, how much did you even know of Delta, even being a former Navy SEAL at that point? I did not know it existed. Um, and wow. I, I, it was very interesting because they knocked on my door and they said, we'd like to teach you about something we're not cleared to talk to you about, but it would involve, you know, special operations on the army level. And uh, I had no, no idea who they were talking about. Uh, and I, so I said no, based on the simple fact that uh, I'd already been there, done that, and needed to do some doctoring. But when you're on uh, Fort Bragg where I am, people talk and, and you hear and see things. And um, about then there were whispers going on that the army and Navy both had special ops units and I had worked with the SEAL Team 6 people uh, indirectly. I had classmates of mine that were assigned to them. Uh, as I mentioned in my book, Six Days of Impossible, that we talked about last time, that I had oh. 11 classmates, and of those 11, eight remained on active duty, and of those eight, six were assigned to SEAL Team 6, which is a special honor, and they would talk to me and I would get to go visit them and learn what they do. So I knew that existed, but it's, it, they do a really good job of keeping those that do not need to know from knowing. Sure. And, and you know, we're tiptoeing around areas that I, that I can't talk about, but I will tell you that 
yes, their their ability to be secret and their ability to be invisible is 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 impressive. Um, for its, for all intents and purposes, when you're assigned to these tier one units, you cease to exist uh, to the to the military world. You just you're just not there. And um, but you know until you knock on somebody's door. And yes, sometimes. Um, Sometimes you have to explain to people who you are and why you are. Uh, I got myself in a lot of trouble once in a civilian hospital when I was assigned to Delta, and I showed up to take care of one of the, my family members and you know, walked in to talk to her and acted like a doctor because I was a doctor, and the hospital commander sent security up to get me going, dude, I don't know who you are or what you think you're doing, but you're doing it in my hospital. And, uh, and I had to say... <laughs> or, um, we'll have to step into a separate room so I can talk to you about this. And uh, if you'll stand by for a moment, I'm going to ask somebody to ask you to sign a non-disclosure statement. And he goes, what? Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's it, Sometimes it, you, you get yourself in situations where you, know, you kind of have to wiggle your way out of. So, so tell us what it meant to be a command surgeon for them. So you... You're still a family doctor at, at Womack. You're still seeing patients. Nobody knows that you're attached to this unit. But what what were your duties there? What what and then how much did they even tell you about what you were going into? Well, what they didn't tell me much at all about what I was going into, um, except that you know I would be responsible for taking care of the soldiers and their family members, and which is what I did for a living as a family doctor anyway. So it sounded pretty easy uh, initially. And then when I got there, the uh, commanding officer of the unit pulled me in and he says, pay attention, I'm going to tell you the most important thing that I can tell you in orientation. And that is that as the commander of this special operations unit, I've done every job of every one of my staff officers except yours. And I can't do hmm. yours and I'd never be able to learn how to do yours. So here's what I want you to understand. I'm the commanding officer of a unit with unlimited resources. You may have anything you want whenever you want it. All you have to do is ask and tell me wow. it's for my soldiers and it's for my family members because I can't do your job and I'll never be able to. So when you ever ask me for something, know that the responsibility comes with that because I'm always going to say yes. Wow. That was a wow. So that was a even wow if moment. you're the spouse of a, I would say so. <laughs> well, and so even when, um, so even if you're the spouse of a of an operator, you're cared for differently than, or by different people than other spouses of other soldiers. Yes, you are, and we took great pride about, in that, taking care of our our family members. And I was on call to our families day and night, twenty four hours a day, and they all knew it. And and because I was a family physician, and I delivered with obstetrics, you know, I put the word out as soon as I got there. From this point on, anybody that wants their baby delivered by the unit doctor, we'd be proud to provide that service. And uh, while I was there, I delivered 44 unit babies. And when I go to reunions wow. now, I'm still running into moms going, Doc, 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 let me tell you about the baby you delivered. <laughs> and it's wow. it, it's fun. These are some pretty tough wives and pretty tough moms here because, one, they're probably shouldering a lot of the burdens of taking care of the kids while their husbands are out, you know, presumably doing things they can't even tell them about, right? Yes, absolutely. But that same description applies to any wife of any military member. 
I don't want to, I don't, sure. I don't believe that the sacrifices we ask our family members to make for a destroyer man who goes out to sea for six months is any less than the special operations soldier who goes away multiple times for shorter periods. It's, it's hard to be the wife and family of the military member these days because there's been a war going on somewhere in the world for a very long time. And we have forces from the Army, Navy, and Air Force deployed in over 200 countries right now. And we've had it that way for many, many years. Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable service by everyone. And, um, and I guess more what I meant by that question is, yeah, there's no question. It's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing, you know, what the families go through, but for these operators, could they even tell the, their families what continent they're going to, or <laughs> was it just not being deployed and that's it? No, no, absolutely not. There, and oftentimes when you get the alert, you don't know either and you won't know until you ah. show up in your lockdown scenario. Um, so I, um, and you know, I, when, if I was at work and the beeper went off, I had a, a secret code that I would tell my wife. I would text her or call her and say, I'm going to be very late tonight coming home. And that was the code that I wasn't coming home. And so she would immediately start looking at the news, you know, and, and I'd come back wow. two weeks later and she goes, I know what you did. <laughs> No, you don't. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. It was on CNN. <laughs> but but even then, I could say, well, that's nice, sweetheart, but I can't talk about it. So, <laughs> so so you're 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 also deployed with them at, at different times. So, tell us about how you prepare for that. I, I mean, you're not even knowing where to go. Um, how do you know what to bring? Well, I think that's that's probably the scariest part as a physician. Um, we would prepare for everything. You know, our pre-packed bags, you know, assumed a shooting environment. So we'd have to, we'd have to have acute trauma. And I had uh, something called an 18 Delta medic assigned to me. That's the highest level of, of trained medic that the United States Army has. And the Navy sends its medics that are in Special Operations Unit to the 18 Delta training. And it's six months of heavy um, training in combat uh, casualty management, a tremendous entity. And these guys are very capable of delivering babies and, and doing surgeries and putting in airways and, you know, the kind of things that, that I would expect um, very few doctors to be competent at doing. But it put puts us in the position of being able to forward deploy my medics through the door I mean, if if, wow. if 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 you haven't heard about our most recent Navy SEAL winner, um, he was a medic and um, won the Medal of Honor for, uh, for saving the life of a physician uh, and killing the bad guys on the way in and then caring for them on the way out. And Because um, he was a hostage, right, the physician? The, yeah, the physician was a hostage and it was a successful rescue mission that um, he covered, he literally covered the doctor's body with his own while he was shooting the the bad guys and then ministering uh, first aid to his own unit members to get him out amazing story but you know yeah. those are the kind they have these capabilities and as the physician my biggest issue before we go in those brief hours before we launch was to say okay what part of the world is it what immunizations do i need to give 
Are we gonna be exposed to um, nuclear, biological, or chemical environments? And then pack accordingly. Wow. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And I'm sure it's, it is for a lot of our listeners just thinking about that. I mean, they think of all they do to prepare for their day with <laughs> a lot of resources. And you had, you know, where you're told unlimited resources, but it doesn't mean you could bring everything everywhere. Uh, it's just, it's just amazing. And I'm also thinking, you know, these guys train pretty hard. Um, you must have seen a lot of training injuries. And I know we actually talked about one of these offline what kinds of injuries did you see, and, and then how were those treated? Because some of them would show up at the hospital, and no one else could really know who they were. Well, the, the two that I briefly mentioned earlier was uh, both fascinating to me. One was the man I mentioned earlier who was holding a flashbang grenade, and it malfunctioned and blew his hand with high heat to just bones and flesh. Um, another one was a man who was repelling fell down three stories when the when his repelling device failed and uh, busted every bone in his foot. And the way those stories connect is the man with the bones uh, busted in his foot had to have wires pinned through each of all 10 toes and, and metatarsal bones to line them back up again. And the, of course, that means the wires pass through the cartilage of every joint. And the medic, I'm sorry, the orthopedic surgeon said, this man will never walk again without pain, much less run. So I went to the commanding officer of Delta at the time and I said, sir, I got to tell you what the orthopedic surgeon told me. I don't think your boy is going to be able to run again. And he just smiled and looked at me and said, then doc, you don't know our men very well. And sure enough, six months later ago, that man was running. I'm sure he had pain, but he kept going. And the other... Um it's unbelievable what these guys could do. And similar with, for instance, the poor man who had his hand literally cauterized off of his forearm. When I walk into the emergency room, he's going, hey, doc, uh, here's what happened. Flashbang went off. And, you know, I don't see much tissue left, but we recovered everything we found on site. And he's giving me this, you know, medical rundown because we trained everybody in medicine. And he goes, do you think you can save my hand? And the nurses look at me going, who is this guy? Why isn't he screaming in pain? And I said, trust me, he's in pain. But these are just different types of people. And, you know, I've, I had a similar interesting experience in a SEAL that I cared for when I was at Fort Bragg. I was actually in the emergency room when a, a, a Navy SEAL who had lost his leg below the knee was ride, out riding his bicycle and he got chest pains as he was passing the hospital. And he said, you know... I think I ought to go get checked out. So he turned around, rode his bicycle into my emergency room, and we immediately got him in, set him down, put him on an EKG, and bam, he had a, 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 a ST elevation myocardial infarction going on right there in front of us. And I went, wow. oh my goodness, if you hadn't ridden yourself up to the ER, you would have died on that bike. And we got him stabilized. We got him in the ICU. We got all the muscle enzyme proof back that he caused damage to his heart. And I, and I pulled him aside and I said, look, seal to seal, I got to tell you this, you know, you're probably done being a seal. I, you know, I know you've already been through war and you've lost a leg and, but you know, diving and jumping out of airplanes and I'm a flight surgeon and a diving supervisor. I don't see that happening given the fact that you've just had a major heart attack. And he goes, all right, doc, I hear what you're saying, but you know, let's just wait and see. 
Well, six months later, his echocardiogram was stone cold normal, and his his uh, he was totally clear to jump and dive and do anything he wanted. He just huh. they just got good good protoplasm. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, we had a flight surgeon on uh, last year, one of our episodes, and he talked a lot about how how difficult it is to give bad news to somebody that they can't fly anymore. Mm. And that was unfortunately part of his job. Um, when you had to give one of these guys news like that, I'm sure they didn't take it well and, and probably argued. I mean, what was the process? Was it just your, your word and that was the final, final word or could they appeal it? Uh, the final, the final word always belongs to the commanding officer of the unit. And, and okay. twi- twice I can remember in Delta where I said, no, don't, no go. Uh, one was a man who had become an insulin-dependent diabetic by using too many, you know, weightlifting supplements to make him stronger. And um, I said, no, he can't jump out of airplanes, free fall. And the commanding officer overruled me and said, nah, he's smart enough to know how to take his insulin. I'm going to allow it. Perfectly within his purview. The other one was this same man who had blown his hand off. He We built him a beautifully functional prosthetic. And it allowed him to use three a three-finger-like device uh, to move things. And he came in six months after practicing with his hand and asked me to clear him to free-fall parachute. And I said, no. And he goes, no, wait, doc, doc, don't say no. I've been in a harness. I pulled the ripcord of my main court main and, and, stat, and reserve, and I can do it just fine with my prosthetic. And I said, yeah, but why don't you pull the reserve static line safety release on your left shoulder? And he goes, what? It's he couldn't do it, and he knew he couldn't do it, and I knew he knew he couldn't do it. And I said, um, you can't do all the functions to safely jump out of an airplane in the case of an emergency. So I'm going to say no, and the commander backed me on that one. He goes, no, you're right, Doc. Uh, and I'm glad you knew how to pre-fall parachute because it, it made it easier for me to say no intelligently. And it must have given you a l- Certainly more credibility with these guys having been a SEAL, right? I mean, they must have looked at you differently. Oh, it did. And also, it set up some expectations. Uh, and, and there was a, a natural rivalry. I had a Navy SEAL license plate on my car, which after I'd been there about three years and they decided they liked me enough, they stole it off my car and sent it all around the world, getting pictures taken with it in <laughs> Iraq, Afghanistan, <laughs> Iran. And I would get these pictures back just with a hand holding my license plate with the Navy SEAL insignia on it. <laughs> well, how many uh, of you were there, physicians stationed with them? Was it? Ju- I mean, it couldn't have been just you. It must have been a, well, several others. Initially, now this was 2000 uh, time frame, we had two doctors and one physician's assistant. Um, now those numbers have increased and... Um, we have more. We have more doctors and more PAs. Uh, I just went to a reunion recently, and I believe the number's up to four physicians and five PAs. But we have expanded missions within the medical system too, because I mentioned the nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare threats that that were alive then and are alive now, thank you to the uh, despot regimes that are out there. So right. It, it, and, and we still take care of the families and we still deliver their babies and we still try to do all that we can to allow the, the soldier to, to go away and not worry about family. Wow. Well, let's talk about a place that you, I assume, were told you were going to because you were deployed there for a while and that was Iraq. Um, 
tell us, uh, take us forward a little bit when you went there and, um, you know, what was involved in that deployment. That could be source for a whole nother book. Uh, and I'm not ready to write that one yet, <laughs> but the, uh, the kinds of things that you don't see coming as a civilian doctor um, are, are traumatic in, in a war environment. You know, you don't, as a family physician, ever expect to deal with a multiple gunshot wound scenario. You don't ex- expect to see some of the uh, infectious diseases that exist outside of the United States that don't exist, uh, that do exist in these other countries. You know, I, I saw schistosomiasis and leishmaniasis, which were infectious diseases I'd learned about but never, ever seen. And it, it's kind of curious that when somebody comes in with um, symptoms in that world, like take, I mean, specifically Iraq, uh, uh, leishmaniasis was something we were all immediately made aware of because when that war started, we were operating in tents without electricity, without water, and bugs just ate our soldiers alive. You know, you'd sleep in your underwear because it was 130 degrees in the daytime and cooled down to 110 at night, and and you were just fodder for the bugs, and those bugs carried leishmaniasis, which has both a cutaneous um, disease uh, that shows up as a, a horrible skin sore, and it has an internal uh, disease that is much more difficult to treat and potentially fatal. And we had schistosomiasis, which was in the waters and the rivers, and, and 130 degrees, a river or a lake there was quite a, a fun place to be. And we allowed soldiers initially to cool off in the waters there and until they came walking in, peeing blood, going, what, what's going on here? And the schistosomiasis uh, parasite, which is carried by those freshwater snails, swim up your urethra and get in there and irritate the bladder and urethra. But if in the United States, I would never think to include that in my differential diagnosis. But, <laughs> but in Iraq, a woman, just exactly what happened, a woman came in complaining of UTI symptoms without any you know, real reason. And when I looked at her urine under the microscope, I could see the schistosome swimming in it, just like you would see pinwa baby in, you know, in the, if you see them under the microscope, they look very similar. And I went, oh, I, and I had to send back to the United States for the specific mebendazole antiparasitic medicine, which I kept on hand from then on out. So, you know, these are just the kind of things that catch you by surprise as a doctor in a war zone. Um, thinking, you know, I, and I got to tell this story because it, it's, it's real basic, but it, it really tells you what it's like to operate outside of the United States. When we were building our clinic, we hired local contractors to build up walls uh, from the blown out stone buildings. And one of them fell on an 18 year old uh, worker's legs and came into my clinic. He was just right outside, freshly wounded with a compound fracture of the lower leg with his tibia and fibula sticking out through the skin. And I, I said, oh, this is not good. This is gonna require an orthopedic surgeon sit uh, and I had to call a medic back to get him to an orthopedic surgeon. But I only did that after I pulled the father aside and I said, look, I've cleaned the wound. I've, I've given him pain meds. I've put the bones back in alignment, which I would have done in an emergency room setting anyway. I've wrapped it up. And now I need you to go as a civilian 
to your Iraqi doctors and they will take care of you. Because that was our rule. You know, send the civilians back to the civilian doctors, which were right there with us. And the, the poor boy and his, son, and his father, through a translator, eyes got real big and they said, no, doctor, you don't understand. They'll cut his leg off. And I went, no, wow. no, no, no. He just needs external fixation. And they go, sir, that doesn't exist in Iraq. Oh, so they'll cut his leg off. Yes. Well, we would never do that. So I put him on a helicopter, flew him to the next level of care where we got our orthopedic surgeons to save his leg. And I got called by the general the next day giving me hell for ordering a medevac on a local when he should have gone to their uh, local guys. And I said, General, read your own rules. You said I can use a medevac for civilian casualties when life or limb is in jeopardy. And I said, sir, huh. that man would have lost his leg. Oh, he said, sorry to bother you, doctor. Have a nice day. Huh. <laughs> Thanks for following <laughs> the rules. And no one wants you to as long as you got the rule book. Yep. Well, that, then that takes us into, I mean, what was the state of medical care in Iraq when you arrived? What year was that? Okay, well, this was 2004. And okay. um, the war had just started. And the state of medical medicine in Iraq was the same supremely capable state it was 25 years before that. <laughs> because nothing had been allowed to change in 25 years when the medicines that even existed back then had progressed tremendously. Um, there were great doctors, proud of what they did, wanted to do the best they could, but Saddam Hussein had not allowed a doctor to leave the country in 25 years. There weren't any medical books in Iraq, in Iraq that we were aware of. Uh, everything was taught at the bedside in the old Socrates method of teaching. You know, teacher, teacher student who teaches somebody else, and they did the best they could with what they had, but it was by our standards primitive. And you know, right. two great examples of that was I was having dinner with a psychiatrist, and I I said, "Look, sir, you're you've seen a hundred thousand men die and not come home in Saddam Hussein's wars over the last twenty years. You must be dealing with a lot of depression in the families and wives." And he go, "Oh my gosh, yes, it's horrible." And I said, "Well, how do you treat that?" do you use Prozac? And he goes, I don't know what Prozac is. And I told him about SSRIs. He goes, you know, I think I heard about that 20 years ago, but it's not in our country. I said, so what do you wow. do? And he says, well, we use Haldol. And that caught me totally by surprise because Haldol is an antipsychotic used for, uh, for psychotic hallucinatory situations in, in ICUs. And he said, sir, that doesn't work, does it? And he goes, no, it doesn't, but it does make the <laughs> symptoms a little bit better. Well, and, and to make the long story short, I told him about the SSRIs and how they worked and how they made depression better. And his next question was, can I please have some for my wife? And we hooked her up and she got better. Um, you know, the other interesting conversation when I'm talking to one of their very most capable doctors, a cardiothoracic surgeon who operates on chests and hearts, with the way they did it 25 years ago, was asking me about one of his biggest nightmares, which was asthma in the emergency room. And he came to me and said, how do you treat asthma? Because we're not having good luck here in Iraq. And I told him, we use albuterol inhalers and we use steroids. And he goes, but no, that's not right. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I use IV theophylline. And I went, oh, 
sir, 20 years ago we discovered that was killing people and we don't do that anymore. Um, it did work a little back then, but it's too dangerous. And so I was able to help him take the next step forward and, uh, and, and, and learn our next level of care, which we immediately gave him and immediately implemented. And so that was a big part of your, your job too, was, was helping these guys almost as a mentor, right? I have not told you this yet, but the most important thing I have ever done probably in my life as a doctor occurred in 2004 when I was there. I got invited to Baghdad from bad guy country, Habania, where I was stationed. To, to receive a $250,000 grant from the U.S. Agency for International Development and hold a four-day conference for all of the doctors in Iraq and teach them what had changed in the previous 25 years. It wow. was the, the wow moment of my life. It was scary. It was dangerous. We pulled it off in the middle of a shooting war, but we had 700 doctors from around Iraq come into Baghdad under our safety and protection. And I flew in 32 doctors from around the country, United States and Great Britain, across every medical specialty. And we taught them in four days what had changed in, well, we introduced them in four days what had changed in medicine across all the specialties. And we recorded it all and we put it on CDs and we gave it to every doctor. And I was told that by, by a week after that conference, there were 10,000 copies of that CD in every hand of every doctor in, in, in Iraq. Wow. Major achievement, tremendous. And, and I gotta say, the doctors that were at that conference who had not been allowed to leave the, the country and who, who wanted to take, help, help their patients would come up to me and my staff just, just hugging us and crying openly going, thank you America for what you've done for us in these four days. It still chokes me up to think about it. And, 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 and they were so grateful. And I still am in contact with those doctors from Iraq, many of whom have found their way to the United States and gotten some additional training now that freedom of travel and freedom of education exists in that country. And I still get about every six months uh, thank you emails from the doctors whose lives we changed by invading that country. That's... Uh... That's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like in their shoes. It's, it, it's almost like waking up from a coma and finding out the entire world's changed around you. And yeah, you know, I'm actually looking at the map right now, just trying to, you know, remind myself. I mean, Jordan, you know, borders it on on the west. Syria, of course, would probably be in the same spot. You know, more, a little more primitive with their, you know, their medical care at that time. But there were no s smartphones then. They, they were only just starting to come in probably no internet. So there really wasn't a way for these guys to communicate with anyone else, even their neighbors, right? Correct. But, but you bring up an other interesting point. As soon as we had stabilized Baghdad and the outlying countries, um, internet became available and cell phones became available to that population. And many of them had money stuffed in their mattresses. I mean that literally because there was no place to spend it until yeah. trade had been reopened. And we saw satellite dishes and phone uh, connections popping up on the roof of every single house as fast as they could put them up. And doctors suddenly had access to the rest of the world and didn't need our CD we produced to teach them about uh, the changes in medicine. They could go and research it themselves. And 
And it, it was just, it was fun to watch. It was fascinating to see how quickly change happened. Oh, it had to have been. And, um, and, and when the invasion happened, I mean, what was the system like? Were, were these, was it a government health system? Were they employees of the government? Were they private practices? I mean, what did it look well, like? And that's something that a lot of people don't know or even appreciate. Um, Iraq uh, taught, gives its medical education to it, anybody that wants to be a doctor for free, if they qualify. And they go mm-hmm. through their medical school paid for by the state. And in exchange for that free education, you are required to serve as a physician for 13 years in outlying clinics, taking care of the population. And you've got four years of med school and one year as an intern. And then you're launched out into the this, this civilian population to take care of them for 13 years. After that time, you can come back and apply to be a specialist, to get your thoracic surgery or your family practice or your pediatrics training. But in those 13 years, while you're doing your indentured servitude, your salary from the state was $100 a month. And that meant you had enough maybe to feed yourself, but you had to live with your parents during that time. And I asked doctor after doctor across the specialties, why did you choose to do this? Why did you accept a job that would make you $100 a year for the next 13 years. And the answer impressed me because it was the same at every level I talked to people there. They all said the same thing. I did it to take care of my people. And that's the way medicine was in the 18 and 1900s. Doctors were, you know, paid with chickens and eggs and and, uh, worked for their societies and towns. And that's what I saw in Iraq. And it's still, as I'm talking to the doctors that I know today, it's still a major focus of why my people serve their people in, in the Middle East. And, and Iraq has rapidly come up in its capabilities to where it's almost as good as Jordan, which became the, the premier country for medical care after Iraq went downhill. So besides that, and what an amazing group of people to be able to work with. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, Keith and I were talking about this separately. We're looking at another upcoming episode about the the gap of trust between physicians and patients in the United States. But I imagine that people in Iraq really did appreciate these these physicians and and knew their dedication. Well, they did, but they also knew their limitations. Like uh, they mm-hmm. knew that they would cut his leg off because that's all they could do, and they knew that uh, their children's uh, diseases shouldn't be treated, you know, by the the local guy in the in the local uh, outlying clinic, and it would often have to bring them to Baghdad for specialty care. Um, and I had women in the early part of the war tried to, tried to hand me their children to take back to the United States. Just please take my child. You know they're not they're not uh-huh. safe here, and that's sad. Um, but it, there's a, uh-huh. I, I want to throw this story at you too. There's a there was in those early years there was a trust between the doctors because some of the doctors were Sunni and some were Shiite and some were good guys and some were bad guys as far as the United States uh, had had dealt with this scenario. You know, I had one situation in the mid, just the day before my conference was to start in Baghdad with 700 doctors from coming from all around the country, which we had advertised across Iraq on this new internet thing that they were all learning about. I got a phone call from Jordan by a 
doctor that said, I was coming to your conference to present, you know, medical equipment that I sell here in Jordan, but I can't come now because my brother, the doctor who works for the other side of the team of, of the war, tells me they're going to blow up your conference. Huh. I went, sorry, excuse me, what? Yeah, there's going to be a bomb placed in your conference site and they're going to blow them all up. What a great tar target you have given them and advertised on the internet for them. I went, oh my God, what do I do now? We, we And I ended up having to go to the general in charge of that area and I said, sir, we got to move the conference. There's going to be a bomb in it. And bless his heart, he, in 24 hours, assigned me a Marine Brigade, uh, a platoon, sorry, and buses and security forces, and we moved the entire conference from Baghdad, downtown bad guy, accessible to inside the green zone that we were protecting. And they all arrived at the original place to be bussed into our place. Dogs went in and found the bomb. And I'm alive today because a good doctor decide to turn in his brother, the bad doctor. Unbelievable. So there really was. Uh, that, uh, wow. Yeah, it was there. And I got a 24-hour notice. And we ended up, the conference went on without a hitch, and the bomb was disarmed, and phew, <laughs> there but the grace Whoa. of God. Oh, I wasn't expecting that, Bob. Yeah, I know. Wow. Neither was I. I still, have the, I still have the email he sent me. I look at it periodically and go, wow, thank you for that email. Well, besides your bravery going, uh, is bravery on the part of all these physicians to travel across the country in a war zone to make right. it too. I mean, that just shows again how dedicated these people were. Absolutely. When I say all guys, I mean, I'm assuming there weren't any women physicians, unless I'm wrong. Oh, excellent point. There were not any uh, women physicians in Iraq in 2003. But there were Iraqi women physicians that had trained outside of Iraq that had escaped prior to 2003. And, and they had been trained in England mostly. Uh, and as soon as we got security in, United, in, in Iraq, they returned immediately. And uh, Iraq as a country was, was thrilled to see their women physicians come back to their own home, home countries and, and, and build uh, that new level of, of women's awareness that it could be done. What was interesting when you talk about women in medicine is there were zero nurses in the medical system in Iraq ever. And they were even, they were totally unfamiliar with that concept because even when they were a wonderful and great and, and, and rich country, if you went into the hospital, your family had to take care of you. Your family fed you. Your family changed your dressings. The doctors did the IVs. There was no such thing as a nursing system. And that's one of the things we introduced to the country in 2003 and four. and it's, it's there and operational now. But uh, uh, I had the, the, the hospitals were primitive, primitive, primitive. The equipment was old and primitive. And we would, we would go in and, and as U.S. doctors used to the kind of care and, and equipment we had and just be uh, aghast at what these doctors had to use to make the best of what they had. So it's, I mean, whole new books and stories could be written on the, tra the, the, the system that was and the transition that is. And um, it, it, it's, it's hard to even get people to understand 
But I want to repeat this. The people of Iraq that I've dealt with and the doctors that we freed consistently say, thank you, America. Yeah. Wow. Um, unbelievable. So, yeah, that, I think you do need to put that on your uh, your list of to-dos for the next few years. It would, I'm sure <laughs> it would cover an entire book maybe, too. Um, so at this point, you're not attached to Delta anymore when you're in Iraq, right? That's correct. Yeah, I finished my tour with uh, Delta in 2000, and then in 2003, uh, that's when I got that knock on the door, would you like to come with us from the 82nd Airborne? And uh, so, at the time, I was a full bird colonel, so I found myself in Iraq as uh, the senior physician, but I had asked to be allowed to stay at the operational doctor level, and so um, mostly because I had the rank to let me get away with it. Um, I was able to, to build one of the first operational clinics in the town of Habania, where most of the uh, area clearing operations with bad bad guys were. So that was my next question. I mean, what was, I say the word typical day because there probably wasn't, but were you building clinics? Were you in the green zone? Were you uh, working in Iraqi hospitals? I mean, where was most of your time spent? Well, and- until I got called to Baghdad, uh, the first two months, few months, were uh, we just took over an old bombed-out clay stone building and and put a roof on not roof, but put windows on it and doors on it and cleaned the six inches of dust off the floor and brought in equipment and built a clinic from scratch and wow. uh, set up an ER and a and a trauma care center and brought in tents and brought in electricity through generators and brought in water on you know with water buffaloes and it was a, it was a fascinating process because the first month we didn't have any of that and so we could only operate during daylight hours or you know with headlamps at night uh, in, in in stifling heat uh, but we ended up building it up and developing it into a fairly capable clinic system and we had it spread around because there were a lot of uh, operating we had aviation units in the area. We had command and control units in the area. We had the operators out in the field. And so I'd have PAs and nurse practitioners forward deployed to the to the operational clinics. And then we became sort of their clearinghouse for the more complicated stuff. And uh, we built. And these are just for U.S. soldiers, right? These are not these are, for. These are just for plan. U.S. soldiers. Um, but we offered this. We offered the same level of care to. Uh, the Iraqi workers, and our enemy combatants. You know, I think the worst Mm. event I ever had to deal with from a trauma standpoint was a multiple gunshot wound patient that I got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, we've got an ambulance coming your way with a wounded enemy on it, and our ambulance can only go to your point. You need to put them on an ambulance and continue them on to the surgical center four hours down the road. Do I have time to tell this story real quick? Yes. So... He arrives at two o'clock in the morning and he's been shot in the legs and the abdomen and the chest. His right arm is amputated. There is a, and hanging on, but there's a uh, tourniquet in place. His IV in the subclavian vein of the neck has come out as had the one in his femoral artery. And he had bled so much that his veins were collapsed and we couldn't get an IV in him. And I had a pediatrician assigned to me at the time. And I said, look, you can put an IV in a baby's scalp. You should 
be able to get an IV in this, this wounded soldier, do it. And he tried and couldn't do it. And everybody's looking at me, well, doc, what do we do now? Because I can't get an IV, I can't get fluid, I can't get medications into him. He's awake and he's in pain, by the way. And I said, well, go get me my trauma book and lay it on the legs here because I'm gonna do a venous cut down. I've done it on animals. I've been trained in the military trauma centers on how to do it, but this will be the first time I've ever done it on a human. And I did a venous cut down on his ankle, found the vein, threaded an IV in it, tied it off, started the IV and kind of looked at everybody and went, wow, look what we just did. That's amazing. Huh. And we were able to get him enough morphine to get him stable, get him on an ambulance and send him on his way. And the reason I like to tell this story because it ends in a, in a story of heroism in my book. The young pediatrician who couldn't get an IV got in the ambulance with the medic to instruct him on how to give morphine medication to the patient as needed en route to a four hour away clinic that was gonna go right through the center of shoot, shooting bad guyville. And um, rules in the army are quite strict. Doctors don't go on ambulance transfers. We don't have enough of them. I can't spare them. So, I, okay, you got him. You got your medic train. Get out of the ambulance. And he leaned out with his eyes wide and his voice sincere and said, Doc, you got to let me go on this. I said, no, Craig, you can't go. You know the rules. And he said it again. Doc, you got to let me go on this. All right. I heard you. This, I heard you the second time. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to let you go. You know, you're putting yourself at risk that I wish you weren't. And when you get back tomorrow morning, I need more information on what was going on in that ambulance. So I launched him against regulations. And when he came back the next morning on a, on a, on a helicopter back, I said, you want to tell me why you made me make break, break regulations last night? And he goes, yeah, I will. He said, I was trying to show that 17-year-old medic how to drop five milligrams out of a 10-milligram vial and he was so scared that he couldn't do it. And I was pretty sure that that soldier was going to die on route. And I didn't need it to be on the conscience of that 17-year-old kid. So I put it on me. And, wow. and that's heroism at its best. And you know, the, the end of the story is we saved that soldier. And, and um, he didn't die. And the surgeons did their thing. And, and we... We, going back to your original question, we gave the same level of care to our enemy combatant that we gave to our own soldiers. We didn't feel as good about it because there was a fair amount of animosity against this guy who had been driving a bomb-loading truck to try to blow up our base. But um, but that's that's the Hippocratic Oath at its best. Yeah, that's the extreme version of do no harm. I mean, that's what you swore to. Uh, I, I, I can't even imagine that. I, I just, uh, it's. That goes back to the, <laughs> what's the difference between the civilian and the military doctor? It's pretty significant. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so. Well, Bob, we're getting close on the All time right. here and we could just keep going. And I was thinking maybe we kind of close it up with a story about a birth that you were involved with there. You told, the, told oh, us about the earlier. Happy side of the story. I would, you know, well, I mean, why let, not? Let you me know, this is the American way, right? We got to end with a happy story. <laughs> we'll end with a happy story. So uh, when I, when, after I'd been called up to Baghdad, I was approached by some nuns in the area that said one of the U.S. Agency for International Development workers had, was pregnant, about seven months pregnant, and refused to go home to have the baby. And they knew that I had obstetrics qualification and would I deliver this American baby in a, in a war zone? And I went, 
Um, what? If I can't talk her out of it, you know, I, I, I sent her to me. So I talked to her and I said, you know, you need to go home. You know, we don't have the resources if things go bad. Uh, yes, I could do a C-section, but I don't have, you know, neonatal care for your baby. And she says, well, I'm not going home. So will you deliver my baby? I went, yes, ma'am, I will. So I went to the hospital commander. We had taken over Saddam Hussein's hospital green zone. And it was very capable. And she happened to be an OBGYN doctor and was partly upset that I didn't ask her to do it. And, <laughs> and, but, but mostly upset about the obvious liability and risks that this woman was taking on herself. And so she said, no, you can't use my hospital. <clears throat> so I said, ma'am, colonel to colonel, we got to talk about this. You got to let me do it. She doesn't have any place else to go. Well, she's a civilian. She's not eligible care. Those are the regulations and the discussion. Roger that, Colonel. So being somebody who doesn't like to take no for an answer, I went to the uh, two-star general in charge of the area who happened to be a British man, a brilliant uh, leader. And I said, General, I've got an American woman who is not eligible for our military care by regulation who's going to have a baby in our backyard. And I would like to deliver that baby in our fully capable hospital. Because if if you will authorize it, we can do it here. Of course, if you say no, I'll have to send her downtown to be delivered by the nuns where they don't even have a hospital setting. What, what would you allow me to do, sir? And he looks at me in a very British accent and he goes, oh, right, mate. Like there's more than one answer to that question. <laughs> I said, oh, I was hoping you would say that, sir. Would you mind calling the hospital commander and tell her we're going to deliver the baby here, which he did. And, and we delivered a beautiful beautiful baby girl uh, who uh, the mother stayed in touch with me for many years and we're actually still in touch online and she still works for the Agency for International Development and that that little girl is like 13 years old now and, and doing just fine. Wow. And I assume, as far as we know, probably the only American born in Iraq during that time. To the best of my knowledge, the only American born during the war at that time and which created an old, huh. by the way, because after we delivered the baby, the mother came to me and said, said, how do I get my baby back to the United States? Can you write me a birth certificate? I said, no, I have no idea. So, so I went to our, our British lawyers there and I said, what do we do? And it turns out that uh, there is something known as a certificate of live birth that a lawyer can write. And they did. And she able to get him home. How about yep. that? But a happy ending <laughs> to an interesting story. Well, if she ever runs for president, try to be the first female president. Decades from now, uh, I'm sure there'll be a debate about whether she was a born American citizen. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, we got to end it now, but we're definitely not going to end it for sure because we're going to have to have you back again. I know we just had you back only two weeks, but there's so much more to talk about. And um, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. And I mean this with all sincerity. Thank you for your service. No, I mean, my pleasure. I, and don't forget to plug my book thoughts. before you go. Yes. And <laughs> I, I got to say that very seriously because I have read your book and uh, Bob, please remind our listeners where they can find the book and how they can start reading it. Oh, right? absolutely. Six yeah. Days of Impossible, Navy Seal Hell Week, A Doctor Looks Back is available in Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and all of the online booksellers. And of course, at the Navy Seal Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, which they have started to stock as a historically significant book. Well... Everybody, I encourage you to get on, get on to that. You know, we're going to put a link up on the website, and 
you know, don't even wait. Do what I did and download it on Kindle and read it on the plane. It's uh, an amazing book, an amazing story. Um, Dr. Bob Adams, thank you again for coming on. And uh, until next time, everybody, you know, enjoy your time whenever, wherever you're listening to this. And we'll see you here. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com. 